Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with someone we are very excited to have on the show. We've been trying to make this happen for a long time. We are here today with Rana Awadala. You may also know her as Rana 2.0. She is a Black chronically ill artist, and she lives with a number of diagnoses, including fibromyalgia, PCOS, osteoarthritis, and possible endometriosis. So we're going to talk about all of that. Rana, it is such an honor to have you on the show today, and so great to finally meet you since we've created this lovely friendship on Instagram. I know. I I know I took a while, but, you know, I'm finally here. Oh, no. We all took our time. We have lives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I'm excited because, you know, like I said, this is the first podcast that I've been on, and I'm excited to talk to you more, connect more, and, you know, share my story. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. So with that in mind, let's start from the very beginning. Can you tell us when and how you first realized that you were sick and how you got your diagnoses and how you have kept yourself in a reasonable amount of health up to this point? Yeah. um, You know, I always got sick when I was younger. I would be sick all the time. And, you know, I thought, oh, that's just me. You know, I get sick a lot. Um, But when I was about like 15, I started getting like constant burning pain in my knees and my mom told me, oh, it's strong pains. The doctors told me, no, it's just from your anxiety, your depression. But, you know, a few years later, um, I got some tests done and they still didn't really find much. But now at, you know, 25, I got diagnosed with osteoarthritis in both my knees. So wow. it's interesting, too, because it sounds like they were sort of writing off anxiety and depression as <laughs> the, the possible symptoms early on too, but it's like, those are very serious diagnoses too, that we can't sort of throw out the window either. Yeah. And I was um, seeking treatment for, you know, my mental health, like major depression and, you know, anxiety, but yeah, they were brushing it under the rug saying, you know, depression causes aches and pains, you know, if you lay in bed a lot and I'm telling them like, this isn't normal though. Like I could, you know, I know my body and I know that there's something wrong. But yeah, it was disappointing to see that like I used to go to the doctors all the time for it. And then now I'm diagnosed with arthritis and it's like really bad at this point. Wow. And it makes me think about like what could they have done or would it be this bad if I knew earlier? You know? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, this is an osteoarthritis diagnosis that you have in both your knees now. Mm-hmm. What about the fibromyalgia as well? How did okay. you get that diagnosed? Yeah, so for uh, the last maybe two, three years... Um, as well as the knee pain, it started progressing, you know, all around my body and it was just aches, pains. Like I would, you know, if you touch me, it hurts. Like it feels like my body's one big bruise, you know, I would wake up feeling like I got hit by a truck. 
and I researched fibromyalgia and stuff before, and I'm like, I feel like this is me, you know. But uh, last April, I was still working. Um, I was working at a uh, at Alburn, you know, as a line cook, which was very, very hard on my body. But I started getting sick all the time. I had a lot of um, like UTIs and a lot of cramping and abdominal pain, and I would call out of work all the time. Um, just a lot of stuff was going on with me, like everywhere. So like every um, like everything in my body kind of flared all at once. So I kept going to the doctors, and then that's kind of when like I started getting diagnosed with everything just last year. And basically, wow. yeah, everyone, everything just started flaring, and I just knew that there was something wrong with me. And at first, they thought it was, you know, something wrong with my kidneys or this or that. So I went through a lot of tests and a lot of, you know, a lot of craziness to get the diagnosis. But yeah, and you got it. So what about also um, the reproductive health concerns? We know you've got PCOS, and you mentioned to me before we started the mm-hmm. interview that as you've been investigating possible endometriosis, you've gotten the PCOS diagnosis. Yes. Um, so did that all happen at the same time because you were having the UTIs and you started experiencing yeah. pain? Yeah. Yes. So pretty much um, for years, like my period was always heavy, very heavy, mm. uh, blood clots. Uh, I feel like my organs are all twisting up. You know, I can't sleep. I feel like I need to be in the ER I'm crying in pain and, I just know this pain is not normal, like it's debilitating. It would be so bad that I would just, if I knew I was getting my period, I would say, I'm not going to be able to work. Like, I have to pull out of work. Like, so it was just getting worse and worse. Like I said, I would be in and out of the doctors. I was getting a lot of like UTIs, a lot of uh, pelvic pain, a lot of pain um, by my ovaries. So there was a lot of things going on. And then, uh, like I said, they were testing for endometriosis and they told me they did see like the endometriosis on the lab results, but you know, they can't give you an official diagnosis unless you do the surgery, but they did give me a diagnosis for PCOS. And, um, for like the last year before that, I was struggling really bad, like with acne, cystic acne. Um, I always struggled with, with like extra facial hair and like my weight fluctuates a lot and stuff like that. It's like textbook PCOS. Yeah. Yeah. And that diagnosis was really like relieving for me because I felt like I was beating myself up for so long. Like why, why am I bloating so much? Why am I breaking out? Like what am I eating? What am I doing to my body? But you know, I realized, you know, it's not me. It's just how my body was made. So I just have to like manage those things. You've been really open about that on Instagram as well. Like you've shared particularly Mm -hmm. with your acne journey you know, um, this idea of normalizing our skin being in all different states and not having to be perfect and clear all the time. And, and also showing, you know, people, the journey you've been on and how you've been trying to heal. And so much of your art also reflects this pain journey as well. And how have you been able to keep yourself well? Has it, I know you use cannabis. So has that been like a big part of your, your healing regimen as well? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, I would say. Um, I smoke, you know, weed every day. Um, it does help for pain, but it's not, you know, the end-all be-all. I would say, like, weed mostly helps me mentally, like, to just get in that better mental state that I want to, like, be creative and I want to, you know, I'll be happy. Like, even if I'm in a lot of pain, I can still feel kind of good mentally. But, um, you know, there's different strains and different methods that work better, better than others. So I'm still trying to figure it out pain-wise, but, you know, it does give me a little bit of relief, takes the edge off, and it's definitely something that, like, gets me through. <laughs> so yeah. what is a typical day like for you now? How are you balancing the demands of work and life? Because we know that you're you're now working as an artist and, and mm-hmm. taking on commissions. You know, how are you balancing that as you manage your symptoms day to day? Um, good question. <laughs> It's another loaded one. Believe me, they, they keep getting loaded from here. <laughs> it's good, though. It's good yeah. to talk about it with you. Yeah. Um, so day to day, basically, I wake up and I see how I'm feeling. Like, when I wake up, I'm normally really groggy and stuff for the first few hours. But if I'm up for a couple hours, I kind of start to see how my body's going to feel for the day. Like, it'll start, like, burning or aching in different spots. 
So then I'll, I'll try to, you know, I'll smoke my weed and try to get relaxed and try to see if I could get into like a creative mind zone um, or, you know, eat breakfast, get ready. Then I'll kind of see like what I want to create today. Do I want to like work on some of my commissions? Cause I have like a lot <laughs> and I'm trying to get those through, which we'll talk about, but, um, or do I need to spend energy on promoting or do I need to package some stickers? So basically, I kind of go with the flow unless there's something that I really need to get done. Um, so I'll make that a priority first. Um, then by the middle of the day, like maybe I'll take a nap or I'll do something like for fun. And I'll, you know, I'll take a bath towards the end of the day because I have to muster up, you know, the strength and the energy to do that. Yeah. And so pretty much my day is kind of balancing like self-care and like I've really been spending a lot of time like on myself, like just doing things to try to make me feel better. Like mm. whenever I'm down, like I'll, I'll take a bath or I'll do a face mask or, you know, or I'll create something for fun or I'll create something for my business. So it's really, and, or I'll like connect with people on Instagram. I spend a lot mm. of time like communicating with, you know, my followers and stuff. So is it hard to give yourself permission to create that space for yourself? Like we come from this, this culture of, work, 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 right? You know, like you've always mm -hmm. got to be great at the next thing. And is yeah. it is it hard, do you think, like when you're living in a body that is disabled to then give yourself permission to be like, I can do a nice thing for myself right now. Like, is that kind of a, a, a hoop you have to learn to jump through on a regular basis? Uh, definitely. That's probably one of the hardest things. Because hmm. um, I always feel like I need to be doing something, you yeah. know, I was always a hard worker. You know, I started working when I was, you know, 16, became a manager at 18 and was a manager for years. And then I became a cook and I had that hustle. So it's like, I'm always, you know, and I, I you know, went through like a lot of, you know, trauma and poverty, you know, growing up. So I always had to just like keep going, keep going. So that's mm -hmm. really where my mindset is. And like right now I'm in a more comfortable space. Like I have my apartment, my dog, you know, my art's doing well. Hmm. And I do have that space where I can say, you know, I can just relax today and whatever happens today happens today, but I still just want to keep going, you know, but I definitely do have to talk to myself and tell myself, like, you have time, like you have 24 hours in a day. Like, you know, I'm the most important thing, you know, in my life. I have to work on myself in order to do all these other things. I have to take care of myself. So I kind of just talk to myself and, you know, Sometimes I beat myself up over if I can't rest or relax, hmm. but you know, sometimes we just have to listen to our bodies. Absolutely. It sounds like you're on very much on the other side of that battle, even though it's a, it's a constant reminder. And I think it's mm -hmm. something that so many of us in the Spoonie community struggle with, you know, and it's great mm -hmm. to see examples of people who are living experiences that are familiar to us, like you being able to mm -hmm. talk about it, being able to share um, inspirational content as well that like helps us go, okay, if she could do it, I can do it too. You know, like no, that's great. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. So, I mean, let's dig into, you mentioned oh, some of this trauma that you've experienced, you know, mm -hmm. getting to all these points. And I'm wondering in terms of that trauma, have you been in a position where you've been confronted and forced to justify the existence of your diagnosis to people or diagnoses to people who didn't understand them because they couldn't see them, be they medical professionals or friends or family. Mm -hmm. What has that experience been like for you? I know you talked about people writing things off as mental health issues when they yeah. were physiological, but like, what is that experience like from your perspective? Um, so yeah, I can relate to that in many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, like firstly, as we discussed with, you know, doctors, you know, as a woman, they're so easy to say oh it's just anxiety or you know you're just anxious or they told me oh you did track for five years in high school so you know your knees are just messed up but I'm like everyone <laughs> else's everyone else's knees are not messed up from doing what I did exactly <laughs> so I'm just like can you guys you know I feel like you know just not being taken seriously by medical professionals um another thing is you know I grew up in a very strict Muslim household and you know it was very like strict and religious and very hard on us. Like my, the way my parents taught the religion. So, um, you know, and they did, told me all the time they didn't believe in like anxiety or depression. 
And it's like we went through so much trauma and all the things that, you know, we struggled with. And for them to, like, deny that existence, that, like, depression is real, you know, anxiety is real. And there would be times where, like, I would be crying in bed in the next room and I hear, I would hear my parents, like, uh, watch the news about depression. And they're like, oh, that's not real. And I'm like, I'm literally over here, like, you know, depressed. <laughs> but um, so yeah. I, I got it from my family. And like, even when I told my mom about like my diagnosis and stuff, it's much easier for her to like, understand the physical pain rather than mm. the mental pain. Because like, yeah. you know, I used to tell her all the time, like, oh, I can't go visit you. I'm feeling really depressed today. She would be like, oh, just shake it off. Just come over here. And I'm like, mom, you don't understand. I physically can't get out of bed. You know, I can't mm. do it. But she did not understand. But then when I became chronically ill and I would say, mom, my knees really hurt. You know, I got to stay home. She would say, okay, I understand. Feel better. Mm. So, you know, I've dealt with, you know, both sides. So from, you know, doctors, family, friends, like a lot of people that I used to um, be friends with, like from high school and stuff like that they don't associate with me anymore. Like they're Mm. like chronically ill, disabled. Like, what is that? So it's like, and that's been good because I obviously don't need those people in my life, but it definitely like sucks. Like, you know, you become chronically ill and disabled and you know, you didn't ask for it, but then everyone in your life like kind of chooses how they feel about you. And you kind of just have to move on from there and stick with the people who want to stick with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you mentioned also, and you talk about this online, like when you made your first chronically ill best friend, you know, and like what that was like for you. And Mm -hmm. do you think that in, in creating some of your art and reaching out to the community, you've actually been able to create more relationships that are based in a deeper understanding and be able Mm -hmm. to have closer relationships with people because of that, because they understand your experience? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I find like with the chronic illness community, you meet someone, you're like, oh, you have the same chronic illness, you know, we're best friends. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you just relate on a deeper level without even having to like explain yourself. Mm. And then when someone does have the energy, like one of us has energy to explain it, you're like, yes, you know, you understand me and I don't even have to say a word. Hmm. So we don't get that understanding from, you know, a lot of able-bodied people or people who don't go through what we go through. So, yeah, I definitely, like, made a lot of deep connections, like, you know, with you. Hmm. Right now we're finally talking camera, you know, on the yeah. camera and, and that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have met some other people that were like, oh, we could visit each other one day or, like, we play video games together and yeah. we'll talk about life. And, you know, we just relate on a different level. Hmm. Sometimes I think, like, you know, it's hard to have friendships with, um, with able-bodied people. Like, yeah. I feel like I want to be friends with people who have mental health issues or chronic, you know, are chronically ill because they're the ones who understand, you know, they're not going to be upset when I cancel plans or when I can't text them back. And it's just, you know, easier when someone knows what you're dealing with. Yeah, that's so true. Um, also, I wonder about, like, especially because of how open you are about, your experiences, your online sharing about your personal experiences with chronic illness, with your relationship with life and coming from a very strict household growing up. Is that something that's also been a bit of a push and pull with your family to understand your current lifestyle or has it been a transition that's worked out? Um, so growing up, so my, <laughs> I'm going to give you a little synopsis yeah <laughs> yeah childhood because I don't really talk about it a lot um like you know I'll glare over it but this is something you know I guess I'll share with you Lauren. yeah if it's too much <laughs> we don't have to talk about it either I, I you know I no, ask lots fine. of questions you're allowed to say no <laughs> oh no it's fine because you know it's part of my healing it's something I, I don't talk about it so it'd be mm. good to talk about it yeah great um yeah so growing up like I said um I had a lot of siblings mm. my Dad had uh, multiple wives because we're, you know, Muslim. We were mm. raised Muslim, so you could have multiple wives in that religion. Um, so I grew up in here in Middletown, New York, you know, where I still am today, mm. um, in a one-family house, but with, like, a lot of siblings. My, my mom had 12, uh, 12 kids of her own. Wow. And my second mother, you know, my dad's other husband, you know, was kind of, um, she had 12 other kids. Wow. So it was literally like 
my dad. How is he providing for 24 children? I'm like, wow. That's the thing. That's the thing. You know, they couldn't provide. So that's Mm. what the struggle was. Like, they were so stressed out um, because of the build and stuff. You know, Mm. my mom worked two jobs. My second mom was a nurse. Mm. And, you know, he, like, worked from home when he wanted to and stuff like that. But, um, so yeah, we grew up really poor because there's so many of us and like, we grew up kind of like neglected and we couldn't do certain things we wanted. Like we couldn't go hang out with friends or, you know, hang out after school or do, you know, a lot of things that other kids our age would do because our parents were really protective and, you know, our house was in shambles. So like, we weren't allowed to have anybody over. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, it really affected my childhood and, um, sorry. No, that's (laughs) definitely No, it's it's a lot to think through and process. Yeah, so it's like just having a lot of siblings, and I was this, um, so I have a twin brother. Oh, wow. I have a twin brother, so he's the second, no, I'm the second youngest, he's the youngest, but I came out before him. Okay. So, you know, we're the youngest, and, you know, when all of our siblings got older, they either, like, ran away from home or, you know, did their own thing and, like, took a different path. So we kind of all had like kind of distant relationships with each other, mm. which is tr- what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So growing up, we're kind of still that way. You know, we're kind of still doing our own things. You know, a lot of them have families, you know, they have kids or, you know, working and this and that. But um, I think a lot of them, they haven't really taken the time to like understand what, you know, chronic illness is for me. Yeah. And a lot of them like see that I just keep going and going and I'm always doing something or it looks like I'm doing good. So, you know, they don't really reach out, um, you know, they don't really interact with me with my art or anything like that. Mm. Um, So, yeah, some of them are creative and do art and stuff like that. And, you know, we're a really talented family, but there's just so many of us. So it's been like a lot of trauma, uh, trauma, like abuse, poverty. Mm. So it's just like shaped all of us different. So we're like all different paths, really. Well, and it makes me wonder also, you know, if creativity runs in the family, does chronic illness also run in the family? Is it something that like maybe some of your siblings might be dealing with and be in denial about? So, yeah, um, I do actually have three sisters, three or four sisters who were diagnosed with chronic illness. Wow. And, um, you know, you would think that we would be closer, but like, you know, we do, you know, talk to each other on like surface levels, but you know, just a lot of things have happened and, you know, people are the way they are. So sometimes you just have to like, you know, just take relationships for what they are. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Well, and just because someone has an experience of chronic illness doesn't mean it's the same experience as yours either. So you have to connect with the people you can connect with. Absolutely. And I'm wondering also, I mean, when we were talking about introducing you, you said to me, can you say that I'm black? You know, like it's Mm -hmm. important to you. Your blackness is a really big part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you're also working on a black disabled portrait series Mm -hmm. right now. Can you talk to us about that experience, especially in the healthcare system as a woman of color? Do you think that many of your experiences could have been different if you had presented differently, if you'd shown up as a white woman, as a a male, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that? How much of that experience do you think was shaped by your race and your gender? Um, I think a lot of it, sadly. Um, When you walk in, you know, you're presented as, you know, a woman. Some doctors just don't take that seriously at all. Like I said, you know, it's, you know, bigger issues get, you know, brushed aside or, you know, you're not taken seriously. Um, you know, as so I, I'm black, but I'm also white. So I'm mixed. Mm. So, you know, I'm a little lighter skinned. And then I also have an Arabic name. Mm. <laughs> so it's kind of like a lot of people like I feel like I get judged or missed out on opportunities in a lot, a lot of different ways, which is a shame because, you know, it shouldn't be that way. Mm. But it's like. I, you know, even growing up, my name is Rana Awadala. Like, I feel like you don't get called for certain job interviews or people assume different things about you. And it's the same thing in the, you know, the healthcare system. Um, uh, you know, being black as well, you know, doctors, a lot of them, I feel like can't really, you know, relate to certain issues or they have like this misconception, you know, that black people could, you know, have a high tolerance for pain. Which is the most ridiculous. It is unbelievable that doctors still believe this. Like, you know, and still being, you know, taught. So the majority of doctors believe that. So 
it makes me think if you know if I was white and I went to the doctor, would they be giving me different pain management? Mm-hmm. Would they you know care more because of the color of my skin? Would I be like getting different treatments? Like mm-hmm. you know, yeah, so it's definitely. It definitely um, impacted. Well, and like, as you mentioned earlier with the osteoarthritis uh, diagnosis, could you have been given that diagnosis sooner and maybe it wouldn't have progressed as far as it's progressed Mm -hmm. too? Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that like racial and gender inequality in particular in the healthcare system are a public, this is a public health crisis when people are being treated differently because of that? I mean, yeah, definitely. No question asked, you know, Mm. no matter what you look like, no matter what you present as male, female, non-binary, anything, you know, if I'm yellow, purple, blue, I should still be treated, you know, with kindness. We're all human beings, all walking the earth together. Mm. You know, why can't we smile on each other's faces and why can't we just be kind to one another? It doesn't matter what we look like. Yeah, So absolutely. If only the world could see through your eyes, I think, you know. (laughs) Through the eyes of those of us who've had these experiences that are like, everyone deserves to be loved and cared for, you know? Yeah. Mm, and absolutely. You know, another thing, like, you know, with the chronic illness community, like, um, like you're saying, you know, we all relate and stuff. And a lot of us, like, we don't, you know, you don't, you didn't follow me and think like, oh, you know, she's African-American. No, you're like, oh, she's, she's chronically ill. Like we see each other, like we see each other for who we are. But then, you know, there is still, you know, a lack of a lot of black faces in the disabled community. So that's yeah. why, you know, I'm starting that project. And I just want, you know, the world to see us because there is a lot of black disabled people. And when I go through like my Instagram feed or I'm looking through a magazine or this or that, I, you know, I don't see us. So I just want, you know, I want the, you know, black disabled folk who come to me for their portraits. I want them to feel like empowered. You know, I want them to be able to share their story. I want them to be able to look at the portrait and say, oh, you know, that's me. And like, you know, I want people to see them because they deserve to be seen. Absolutely. I'm so glad you bring that up too, because that's been a bugbear for me as well. Like being in this disability world, wellness world, you know, and realizing how whitewashed it is and um, having connections with people like you who are actively trying to change that narrative is really important. It's so vital in this community. And I would love for you to talk to us about your work as an advocate in that way, like how you've gone on this journey from a patient to an artist, to an artist and advocate. What does that mean for the wider implications of your work? And how are you working to expand that advocacy in the community? Okay. Um, so it kind of just started, like, once I found out, yeah, I was chronically ill, I made the, the, you know, conscious decision to stop working. I told Mm -hmm. myself, I can't, I can't work as a chef anymore. Like, this is killing my body, you know. I, you know, flipped my life upside down. Like, I had to give up my apartment. I had to give up, you know, my dream job, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, so once that kind of happened, I just leaned back into my art. You know, I've always um, been talented with art, like, from my mom since birth. Mm. Um, I used to do, like, competitions in school and being, like, art honors and, you know, art club and all that stuff. But I never really took, like, my art seriously. Mm. A lot of people were always obsessed with my art. And there would be times where people would take my sketchbook and pass it around the whole class. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I hate my artwork. Why is everyone <laughs> looking at it? So, like, I used to hide my art and stuff like that, and I used to rip it up, and I I used to hate it, you know, because a lot of, you know, artists are critics. (laughs) Yeah, we're our own worst critics, all of us, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I never really took it seriously, but when I became, you know, chronically ill, I realized, like, you know, I got to do something. So, like, the first thing that my heart kind of went to was my art, Mm. but I realized, like, my wrist and my hands, you know, they hurt when I do like art that I used to do. I used to do like a lot of um, paint, painting with like acrylic and um, watercolors or, you know, doodling or mm. pen and markers and stuff like that. That's really, you know, hard on my hands. So then that's when I started to teach myself digital art. Mm. Um, so I didn't have an iPad at the time. So like for months I was doing all my digital art on my phone until like a few months ago, I finally got my iPad again. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, so I just like, 
taught myself digital art and like slowly I started to post it on my personal Instagram. It was still Vana 2.0, but it only had, it just had like my personal followers from like, you know, childhood and stuff like that. Mm. So, you know, I started to post my artwork and then I just said, hey, let me make this my art page. Let me just, you know, keep doing what I'm doing. So, and then I started doing like self-portraits for people and then I just started to draw about like my chronic illness because that's like the majority of my life, you know, everything is affected by it. So mm -hmm. I'm like, I might as well, you know, draw how I feel and put that out there. So then slowly, you know, I started to connect with the chronic illness community and I realized how amazing everyone was. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, like this feels like home. Yeah. So I just, you know, kept creating and connecting with different people and um, I don't know. I just keep going and going. Like whenever, um, like I have a feeling for a project or something's happening or I feel connected to something, I kind of just do it. <laughs> like with the Black Disabled Lives Matter project, you know, that was really important to me. And, you know, if you have that feeling for a project, you kind of just, you just kind of just do it. You kind of just yeah. put the plan in motion. And you feel that and you want to do it. The same thing, like before I did a chronically fabulous project, which was, you know, just chronically ill folks and sharing their story, a similar thing. And, you know, I just did that too. And I just feel like what's next for me is kind of just to keep growing, keep, you know, advancing my art, trying to expand my business, um, trying to expand my merch, just mm. keep doing what I'm doing and like see where it takes me. Absolutely. So what does it mean to you as well that like you've become this sensation like in the last year especially oh, right like, I don't know. yeah I mean like look you went from as you said like the few followers or who are people you knew to I mean we're like have you broken 10k yet you're about to break 10k oh, yeah almost yeah I mean like this is like huge right like what does it mean to you to have people becoming more aware of not only the work of a black disabled woman, but you know, the awareness that you're bringing to race, gender and disability. What does that mean for you? It's kind of crazy looking back. Like I said, I just started posting my art. I told myself digital art and I said, you know, let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> Kept creating, um, didn't really matter what it looked like. And you know, then I found people that I connected with and it, you know, it feels amazing to go on Instagram every day and to like, know that there's people who understand me and like you know they root for me like I root for them like we you know we're giving each other the same support back mm. and you know I've never had support like I've had from the Instagram community and like all the love that's just there um so that feels amazing um yeah. and you know to see all the people that you know have found my work and they're so touched by it like it touches me like, you know, people tell me all the time, like, oh, my God, I love your art. And they tell me how it changed them and how it makes them feel. I'm like, it makes you want to cry. Like, it makes me happy because my art touched you. And, like, I'm really just putting out there what I feel. Like, yeah, you know, people ask me, like, do you think about what you're going to post? Or are you just trying to, like, you know, connect with your followers? Or it's no, like, I'm just, you know, drawing what I feel and putting it out there. And, you know, sometimes people they're going through a similar situation. So they're going to connect with it, you know, when they see it. So it's just nice to relate to people on, you know, a different level. Yeah. I think that's really beautifully said. So let's switch directions a little bit here. I want to talk a little bit about the healthcare system. I know we've touched on it. Okay. Based on your experience, in what way are you seeing the healthcare system work? for patients, mm -hmm. if at all, you can, you're allowed to say it's not working at all. <laughs> and in what ways are you seeing it needing improvement? And can you imagine any particular improvements sort of, you know, off the bat that you could say, gee, it would be better if maybe doctors did this or admin staff did that. Yeah. What are the, the pros and cons of the current system we're living with in the U.S.? Um, well, currently pros, I would say the like telemed appointments mm -hmm. and all the things that like People said they couldn't do for us before coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Um, they need to keep that stuff. They need to keep it going and, you know, progress it further. Like, it's amazing that, you know, we could get our medicine delivered. Um, you know, people are, are, you know, sorry. No, that's right. <laughs> get that's get our medicine right. delivered and, you know, do the telemed appointment so we don't have to go into the office for, like, therapy or your doctor's appointment. Yeah. All that stuff is good. Especially during COVID. Yeah, especially during COVID. But if that, you know, if people could really take that seriously and just 
keep these things for us like after whenever this thing ends because you know it's it's hard going to the doctors like it's like you have to prepare yourself for the whole day mentally yeah. physically and the day after and it's like a lot of stress on our bodies in all these different types of ways so to be able to have an appointment with my doctor like through the ipad while i'm laying in bed like mm -hmm. that's what we need we shouldn't yeah. have to go travel like there used to be doctors who you know used to do at-home visits but you know yes. we don't do that anymore um so i would say you know all those things are pros um but for cons a lot yeah a lot, <laughs> well, a lot more than there are pros <laughs> um definitely i feel like a main thing is like a lot of doctors you know they didn't come or that maybe they came into the position caring hmm. but it just doesn't feel like they genuinely care to know the patient you know, I have a rheumatologist that like I really love. I had an appointment with her the other day and she remembers things about me. She asks me how my art is, how the dog is. And oh, she so tells nice. me to you know, keep going. And like, you know, there's bad days and good days. Like she really like, I feel a connection with her. And I feel mm -hmm. like she looks me in the eyes. She knows how to say my name. Like we need more of those things. And those mm -hmm. things are so simple. Yeah. Well, they're so, so simple like to some people, I think, too. It's hard, it's isn't it? Because I think, you know, in medical school, I look, I haven't been to medical school and I don't know, but like, I feel like we have good, great scientists, but that doesn't mean we always have great bedside manner, right? And like, mm -hmm. sometimes people need to learn how to read the room and how to be with other people and sort of exchange energy and that especially with something as personal as health and especially if you're someone who's in pain mm -hmm. and especially if you're someone who's in pain and has experienced marginalization in the system it's mm -hmm. one of those things where like you need someone who really is as you say taking the time to learn your name to know mm -hmm. who you are to be able to ask follow-up questions to understand what your lifestyle is like right yeah mm. no definitely so that's one thing that i feel like could be improved yeah um, obviously like healthcare should be free for all you know we're all going we all have bodies we all are going to have all these ailments and sicknesses just there's always something to take care of and maintain and you know a lot of the mm -hmm. times we get backlash if you're like impoverished or you know you haven't kept up with certain things like your teeth or your eyes or this and that but you know it's out of some people's control because the way the system is set up you know it's not set up for us to succeed you know, mm -hmm. think everything is harder. So definitely like free healthcare, like just, you know, prescriptions, just everything should be accessible. I mean, they do it in other countries. We yeah. have the money. Why are we putting all this money into the military and all these other things? Thank you. We're not putting it into the healthcare system. I could not so, agree more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and it's one of those things, as you say, like we've seen this done successfully in other countries. Like why can't we do it? Especially when we have so much, prosperity here, you know, mm -hmm. that like there is, yeah, okay. You know, the military is important. We all feel safe because yes. of the, the military on some level, you know, but mm -hmm. like also maybe instead of worrying about future offenses, we could worry about people who are living at their everyday lives because they, those mm -hmm. need to be, you know, quality controlled, if you will, you know, that, that yeah. if people are living in poverty and unable to take care of their bodies is a, that, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the thing is, they probably don't, you know, they don't care about those people. They're like, yeah. oh, if they can't do it, then they can't do it, you know. It's capitalism, isn't it? It's the it's yeah. the role of privatization, I guess, right? Like, and, exactly. and big money, big pharma, you know, and insurance companies in the healthcare system here. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, um, yeah I love that. I think that <laughs> answers the question. So I was wondering if you could also, I mean, you've been able to get to this place where you're being so open and honest about your experiences and not every day is perfect. You know, there are good days and bad days, but I would love for you to share if you have any tips, like top three tips for someone who's also living this chronic illness life. What advice would you give to them now, or even like advice that you would give to your younger self living with invisible diagnoses? Um, First, I would say don't be so hard on yourself. Mm. You know, we didn't ask for this life, this body, yeah. you know, all the struggles that we go through every day, you know, they're just given to us. They're part of us, part of our life. So we kind of just have to make it work. And you can't blame yourself, you know, for feeling bad. You know, when you feel worse, 
try not to make yourself feel worse for feeling worse. Yeah. You know, that's just beating yourself up more. So like I said, number one, you know, don't be hard on yourself. Don't, don't mm-hmm. blame yourself. No, it's not your fault. Yeah. Um, number two, I would say, um, like you come first, your yeah. health comes first. Um, like you're really good bad. at that. Yeah. yeah. You're really, really good. at Like just, just from talking to you and I knew already that you were good at that and that that's mm-hmm. been bolstered by the community involvement that you've had and stuff too. But you're very, very good at being like, I do this and I need this time and this space and this activity mm-hmm. to recover. Like, so yeah. how, how do you, yeah. How, how? <laughs> like, is it, is it about like, I guess it is about switching your mindset and putting yourself first as you're saying, right? Yeah, because I would say, like, I used to be, well, I'm still anxious, but I used to be very, very anxious, and I would go to therapy, and I would tell my therapist, you know, he would say, what's making you anxious? And I would talk about my family members or friends, and I would say, this person is going through this, this person is going through this, and this person is going through this. And, you know, he told me, like, what does any of that have to do with you? Like, what are you going through? And, you know, I realized I was putting so much energy into other people and where I wasn't getting it back, you know, it wasn't, you know, reciprocated. And I saw that. So I kind of, you know, took a step back and realized like, I'm always going to have me like at the end of the day, yes, I have a partner or a dog or this person, this person, but at the end of the day you have yourself. So you Mm -hmm. can't, you know, give it all to other people and forget about yourself. So, like, one day I just decided, like, if I need something and, like, that's to take care of myself for the better of me, um, you know, I'm going to do it as long as I'm not harming, you know, someone else, like, intentionally in the process. You know, sometimes people do get hurt when you make decisions for yourself, but you have to really think about yourself first. Boundaries. You got to set those boundaries, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard, but, like, it's worth it. Absolutely. What about one more tip? You've said, um, take, put yourself first and don't beat yourself up. Mm-hmm. What would be another piece of advice? Um, find small things to make yourself happy. Like a lot of people say, you know, today was a horrible day or this is a bad life or, but I just feel like everyone goes through so many struggles. Like life is full of it. Like we're all given, you know, different things. Um, we can't compare ourselves to other people's journeys and you just gotta like find one thing that makes you happy every day whether it's like drawing something or binge watching netflix or having your favorite ice cream or taking a bath like just do something that's going to make yourself feel good because you know some days are really shitty like they they suck so you, you know just treat yourself nice and I feel like once you start to treat yourself with more love and kindness like you really just you feel better Yeah. And I think you're someone who's also been really good at um, removing stigma from perhaps stigmatized self-care things like weed, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is one that's like super controversial because some people are like really anti-smoking and some people Mm -hmm. are like, it's a drug, but for you, that's also medicine. And you see that as like, this is what I do for myself to be well. And you're clearly a lot less anxious because of it too. (laughs) No, yeah, definitely. And mm-hmm. I did have a conversation with my therapist a couple of weeks ago. And one of the first questions he asked about my drug use, he goes, so are you planning to quit smoking? Are you trying to cut back? And I'm like, why would I cut back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, why is this the first question that he's asking? Like, it's mm-hmm. obviously helping me. But then he's asking me, do you want to go up a dose on your antidepressant? Sure. And I'm like, no, like, like, I never said anything about that. I said it was fine. And yeah. I said that weed is helping me. <laughs> yeah. So said, yeah. If it's going to make me feel better and I'm not harming anyone, it's a plant from the earth that yep. is amazing that I'm in love with. Like, it's my favorite herb. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do what makes me feel better. I think it's really interesting, the whole weed debate, too, because we've had Laura Parker on the show, too, who obviously mm-hmm. uses uh, cannabis, too, as medicine. And, like, the debate goes back and forth all the time um, because of a, the long-term health implications of smoking. Right. But you guys are like, this is, I need to take care of me now, but B also because it's considered this, you know, psychoactive drug, but it's like, so are the antidepressants that are controlled substances that your doctor's trying to peddle to you too. And it's like, how much do we accept a plant as medicine and how much do we accept something that's been, you know, 
changed in a lab and, mm-hmm. and like altered a million times through scientific research. Like there is a real, I think it's a very fair debate about like, you know, why not use this thing from the earth? Why not rely on nature? It's, you know, they want to make money. They, yeah. you know, they tell us all these pills that to try and all of it just gives us more side effects and this and that. And withdrawal you symptoms. Know? Yeah. And then you go back for more and you're like a lifetime customer. Yeah. You know, I'd rather be a lifetime customer <laughs> with my, you know, to get my marijuana because, you know, like you said, the long-term effects of smoking, but it's not, it's not anything compared to the effects of all these other drugs. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not, you know, shaming anyone for taking pills because I take pills as well. You know, I take antidepressants, um, painkillers, birth control, as well as, you know, smoking yeah. cannabis. So whatever, you know, works for you, you got to keep trying to find ways. I really like that you said that because it is about you know, looking at what's available to you and choosing what works best for you and what works best for you might be weed and what works best for you might be an antidepressant. It might be a combination mm-hmm. of both, but you have to be open to everything. No. Yeah. And it yeah. takes a while to like find the right balance or something that's going to work for you. But Totally. Yeah. So what about, I would love for you to, speaking of weed, um, give us your mm-hmm. top three things that give you unbridled joy. So things that obviously you've had to like shift your lifestyle to work around your chronic illness, but what are mm-hmm. three things that you're totally unwilling to compromise on? These can be like guilty pleasures or secret indulgences mm-hmm. or comfort activities when you're flaring. What do you mm-hmm. turn to when you need a moment of joy, when you need to light yourself up a bit? Um, like you said, definitely we, yeah, <laughs> like literally lighting up. Um, no, yeah, so definitely, you know, we, whenever I'm feeling like down mentally or physically, and I'm like, when's the last time I smoked, you know, then once I start smoking, I'm like, hey, you know, like, I feel mm. good, you know, yeah. back to myself, you know, I feel connected with myself. Mm. Um, number two, I would say, taking a bath, like, yeah. that's like, bath time is the best time. The like, bath time with a joint is the best, isn't it? <laughs> yes. You got the bubbles, <laughs> incense. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, so definitely taking a bath because it's the same thing like with smoking. Like whenever I feel down and I feel like I, I'm in a funk or I just feel like I've been in bed for a long time or I want to freshen up, like, you know, I'll do a nice face mask, take a bath, put on music. You know, that's something that I do that, you know, it makes me feel better every day. Yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky to have a bath and, you know, have that accessibility. Because, you know, that's, yeah. I didn't have it, so I, I'm really grateful for that. I'm so with you on that. I'm, like, at the point mm-hmm. where, like, I will not move somewhere that doesn't have a bathtub. It's, like, a necessity. Yeah. <laughs> now. I can't. Yeah. I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, number three, I would say dark chocolate. Oh, I like that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I love, love chocolate. I've always been a chocolate lover. Um, mm. That's, you know, comfort food. But I used yeah. to, like have milk chocolate like every day when I was really depressed but I realized I was making my symptoms worse with the dairy so then I'm like you know let me just do dark chocolate so I've been Mm -hmm. eating dark chocolate for like over a year and you know it actually helps some of your symptoms with like PCOS and all that stuff so I'm like hey dark chocolate you know it's a guilty pleasure but it's also kind of helping me. So, yeah. And it can give you a little zing with your energy too, because cacao has like Mm -hmm. natural caffeine in it, I think too, right? Like it can make you a little peppy. Um, So that's really (laughs) nice. Plus it tastes good. And you develop a taste for it too. I think I know what you mean about that transition from milk to dark chocolate, because it's hard too to like give up the dairy, Mm -hmm. but when you develop a taste for it, it gets more indulgent and it gets better over time, which is really, really nice. Um, Mm -hmm. So what is your ask for listeners tuning into this episode today? What can people tuning in do to support you and the community, the chronic illness community and the black disabled community in the work Mm -hmm. that you do? Okay. um, So some ways you can support me is by following me on Instagram, you know, at Rana 2.0. Um, you can check out my website for my artwork, um, my merchandise, clothing. Uh, that's all on there at ronawadala.com, which is all on my Instagram. Yep. Um, I'm also doing, like you mentioned, my Black Disabled Lives Matter portrait project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should make the name a little short. BDLM <laughs> <laughs> yeah, portrait project. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. So I'm doing my portrait project for Black Disabled Lives. So each portrait is $25. So if anyone has extra funds and, you know, wants to donate to that cause, you can message me on Instagram. 
for that. Um, and yeah, just keep supporting on, you know, liking, commenting, sharing, just, you know, connecting with each other. Um, I would say like a big ask for, you know, everyone. It's just, you know, like I said, take care of yourself. Um, know that you're doing your best every day, no matter what you do. Mm. Um, just keep being yourself and putting more of yourself into the world because that will make you happier and it will make the world better. So just keep doing your thing and, you know. Yeah, that's how you live your life. We have to model after you <laughs> and your success. So, you know, yeah, really, really beautifully said. I, yeah, that Thank sums you. <laughs> so much of it up. So what's next for you with your advocacy work and with your wellness journey? Um, what's next for me? Mm. Um, I did just have an appointment with my rheumatologist, and I have been having, like, a lot of symptoms of mm. POTS. Wow. So, yeah, so I'm going to see a cardiologist to see if I can get some tests done and, you know, see what that's about. But um, what's next for me is just, you know, keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I try to go on, like, daily walks, to, mm. you know, to exercise a little bit, you know, if I can. Uh, keep taking care of myself. Um, I really want to expand uh, my merchandise. So um, You've got a ton I mean, already. <laughs> so I made so I made a shopping page, um, Rana 2.0 shop. So that's you know another thing you could follow and check check out clothing. Well, it sounds like in so many ways for you starting to put your art out there and combining, you know, really using that as a, a vehicle to express your personal experience has connected you to the chronic illness community and to the world in a new way and sort of changed so much for you. And it, it mm-hmm. goes to show the power of community and the power of, as you've said, following what makes you light up, following your passions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, I'm so excited. A reminder to everyone, Rana 2.0 on Instagram and Rana 2.0 shop and RanaAwadala.com will link to all of this on the website for the episode. So Rana... It has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. I'm so glad we finally connected. It's so awesome to like see you in person. I know no everyone listening can't see her, but she cute. Um, and, <laughs> well, thank you. Um, but we're we're just so honored to have you on the show, and um, I can't wait to watch as your journey continues to unfold. And I'm sure we'll have you back to talk about more stuff. I hope you don't have POTS, um, but I hope you get all that stuff sorted out um, and the endo stuff too. And mm-hmm. let's post it on everything and we'll continue mm-hmm. to follow you along the journey. No, yeah. I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm so happy we connected somewhere along the road. I don't really know how, <laughs> I know. But, you know. And, you know, I love working with you and I love creating your portrait and everything. So if you guys haven't seen the portrait, I'll repost it before this episode uh-huh. goes live so people can see the portrait again. Okay. But like, it's so good. And Rana knows I love pink. <laughs> I've got my pink hair now. So I it's love very pink. No, I, I love, love it too. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. And I've had such good responses from people. People have been like, oh my God, who did that? You know, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you need to meet Rana. <laughs> You're so awesome. No, seriously, thank you for having me. And it was great connecting with you more. I really appreciate you and your support. Oh, I appreciate you so much too. So thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.